NFL Mock Draft 2022 Mike Tannenbaum's GM picks for 32 first-round selections, including three quarterbacks. The 2022 NFL Draft is four weeks away, and I can't wait. At the moment, 24 teams will have the chance to add at least one impact player in round one. Eight teams no longer have a first-round selection, and while this year's class might be light on surefire franchise quarterbacks, it certainly has plenty of game-changing prospects. As a former NFL general manager and executive, I've been through the draft process, from building a big board to submitting the picks. It's difficult enough to manage one team's picks. But today, I'm going to put my GM hat back on and make selections for every team with a first-rounder in 2022. But this isn't your traditional mock draft. I'm leaving the actual round one predictions to my colleagues. This isn't what I'm expecting or what I'm hearing. Instead, what follows is how I'd make each first-round pick if I were representing each of the 24 teams with at least one day one selection. It's based off my own evaluations and preferences, along with what I believe makes the most sense for every team on the board. So here are my GM selections for the first 32 picks, starting with a no-brainer for Jaguars GM Trent Bach at number 1 overall. And be sure to check out our SportsCenter special at 5 p.m. Eastern Time on Wednesday, ESPN2. DE, Michigan The Jaguars already have allocated a lot of resources to their offensive line this offseason. They franchise-tagged left tackle Cam Robinson and signed guard Brandon Scherf to a three-year, $52.5 million deal. So while I thought about an offensive tackle here and might have gone that way a month ago, it has to be Hutchinson. He had 66 pressures in 2021, and he can be a culture-setter for Jacksonville for years to come. What's next for Deshaun Watson and the Cleveland Browns? And what about Baker Mayfield? NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell met with reporters in Palm Beach, Florida, on Tuesday and addressed the latest developments regarding quarterback Deshaun Watson. Watson, who the Houston Texans traded to the Cleveland Browns nearly two weeks ago, will resume his NFL career after spending 2021 on the sideline while facing 22 civil lawsuits alleging sexual assault and inappropriate conduct during massage sessions. Watson was not indicted on criminal charges by two separate grand juries in Texas. Now the NFL must decide what's next. Watson could face suspension under its personal conduct policy. Our people are working on it. Obviously, these are serious charges, so we're looking at this seriously, Goodell said. We now at least have resolutions from the criminal side of it. Obviously, there are still civil charges that are still going on. So, our investigators will hopefully have more access to information. And that will be helpful obviously in getting to the conclusion of, what are the facts and, was there a violation of the personal conduct policy? But that determination will be made by a joint disciplinary officer that was established by the NFLPA and the NFL. There's no time frame on that. For his part, Watson said Friday he is focused on clearing his name. I never assaulted, I never disrespected and I never harassed any woman in my life, said Watson who indicated he would continue to fight the civil lawsuits. That's not my intent, said Watson, when asked if he would consider settling. Here's what to know about Watson's future on and off the field as the lawsuits progress, the NFL continues its investigation and the Browns look to prepare for the 2022 season. What's next for Watson regarding the 22 lawsuits? Deshaun Watson was introduced by the Cleveland Browns on Friday. 
The former Houston Texans quarterback is facing 22 civil lawsuits alleging sexual assault and inappropriate conduct during massage sessions. The five biggest things to watch at the Augusta National Women's Amateur It has been three years since Jennifer Cupcho hit the first tee shot of the inaugural Augusta National Women's Amateur. Three days after her historic tee shot, Cupcho made history again. Rolling in a 20-foot birdie putt on Augusta National's 18th hole, Cupcho won the inaugural event, edging out Maria Fassi. In front of thousands of spectators, the week before the 2019 Masters Tournament, won by Tiger Woods, Cupcho, and the other women in the field made history as the first group of women to play a tournament at the famed course. Now, three years later, the third edition of the Augusta National Women's Amateur takes place with 72 of the best women amateurs from 23 countries competing over 54 holes of stroke play. For the first 36 holes, the field will compete at Champions Retreat Golf Club, after which a cut will take place to the leading 30 players. The entire field of 72 will play a practice round at Augusta National Golf Club on Friday before the top 30 players compete in the final round Saturday. If the 2019 and 2021 editions, COVID-19 forced the postponement of the 2020 event of the ANWA were any indication of what's to expect this week at Augusta, it's to expect the unexpected and don't count out any of the women until the final putt drops. Here are five things to watch for this week. Demon Deacons back for another victory There are 35 colleges represented in this year's ANWA field. It might seem like all eyes are on Stanford, which leads the way with five current players and one future commit competing this week, including current world number one Rose Zhang and number three Rachel Heck. But if history tells us anything, it's that we should be paying attention to Wake Forest. In 2019, former Wake Forest star Cupcho exemplified just what the Demon Deacons could do on a big stage like Augusta. Global Melanoma Cases Projected to Rise Sharply by 2040 Incidences of the most serious skin cancer may rise sharply around the world by 2040. But will Australians be at any greater risk? Melanoma incidence is predicted to increase and the global population ages, but survival rates may improve. Melanoma cases are set to increase by 57% around the world by 2040 with an estimated 68% rise in mortality, the authors of a new study suggest. In 2020, there were an estimated 325,000 people diagnosed with melanoma, and an estimated 50,000 worldwide deaths from the disease, a paper published this month in JAMA Dermatology Reports. If the disease shows the same trends in 2040, the study authors estimate the melanoma burden will increase by 57% to around 510,000 new cases, and project that annual deaths worldwide could increase by 68% to 96,000. The authors also highlight the disproportionate burden of the disease in Australia, which has the highest melanoma incidence in the world at 42 incidences per 100,000 person-years in men and 31 per 100,000 person-years in women. Meanwhile, New Zealand has the highest mortality rate in the world. But while the study has been interpreted as predicting a higher rate of the most lethal skin cancer, the authors make it clear that the estimates are based on extrapolating current data and projecting the same rates for the decades ahead. The future projections were estimated based on the assumption that incidence and mortality rates will remain unchanged between 2020 and 2040, they write. The difference in the current and future burden of melanoma presented here was therefore solely attributable to projected national demographic changes, population growth and aging, and did not account for national or within-country temporal variations.
It is an aspect of the study identified by Associate Professor Joel Rhee, Chair of RACGP-Specific Interests Cancer and Palliative Care. Benchmarking Healthcare Affordability and Perceived Value Americans are finding it increasingly harder to pay for healthcare. Over the past year, the percentage of Americans who report skipping needed care due to cost has increased to 30%. Meanwhile, nearly the same percentage of Americans, 29%, report that they could not access affordable care if they needed it today. But a lack of affordability is not the only issue affecting Americans' experiences with the healthcare system, they are also dissatisfied with its value. More than half of the country, 52%, reports that the care provided is simply not worth the cost. And in an open-ended question, 38% of respondents, representing an estimated 97 million adults, used the word expensive to characterize the healthcare system, while another 13% used the word broken, the second most used word. To understand the depth of these issues and identify which groups are at most risk, West Health and Gallup have developed two new healthcare indices that depict the U.S. healthcare cost crisis. The West Health Gallup Healthcare Affordability Index and the Healthcare Value Index gauge the avoidance of medical care due to cost, the lack of access to quality healthcare, and how Americans perceive the value of care. Put simply, the Healthcare Affordability Index identifies how many Americans can afford quality care, while the Healthcare Value Index balances the cost of healthcare with its quality, answering the question, is the care worth the cost? The desire to create the indices was ultimately catalyzed by the steady worsening of the cost of care and lagging outcomes of the U.S. health system. These two metrics represent the direct intersection of the cost challenges consumers face amid a fee-for-service system and provide two composite scores. Telehealth companies push for permanent expansion post-COVID Telehealth use exploded during the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic, and virtual visits have become common for a wide range of medical services. But this was only possible because of regulations the government relaxed during the public health emergency. Now, as the virus begins to release its grip on the United States, telehealth companies and medical groups are pushing to make these pandemic-inspired changes permanent. Congress recently extended many telehealth changes for five months after the Biden administration declares an end to the public health emergency, which is currently scheduled to expire on April 16. While it is widely expected that President Joe Biden will extend the public health emergency again, he has been under increasing pressure to unwind pandemic precautions. The congressional extension temporarily eases concerns about a telehealth cliff that could abruptly end coverage for virtual treatment, but telehealth lobbyists want to go further. Proponents of telehealth argue that the regulatory changes have done away with outdated, cumbersome limitations and that expanding telehealth improves access and convenience for patients. But some policymakers still have questions about the quality of care telehealth can deliver, the cost of expanding it further, and the potential for fraud in virtual care. Given how much we still do not know about telehealth with respect to cost, outcomes, quality, whether it is adding costs to the Medicare program or saving Medicare dollars, we believe it would be premature to make these expansions permanent, says James Matthews, executive director of the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission, MedPAC, which advises Congress on Medicare. MedPAC will collect data in 2021 and 2022 so that it can study what more of a steady state of telehealth. Lineage or Race California Task Force Sets Reparations Eligibility 
California's first-in-the-nation task force on reparations has decided to limit state compensation to the descendants of free and enslaved black people who were in the United States in the 19th century, narrowly rejecting a proposal to include all black people regardless of lineage. The vote Tuesday split five to four, and the hours-long debate was at times testy and emotional. Near the end, the Reverend Amos Brown, president of the San Francisco branch of the NAACP and vice chair of the task force, pleaded with the commission to move ahead with a clear definition of who would be eligible for restitution. Please, please, please I beg us tonight, take the first step, he said. We've got to give emergency treatment to where it is needed. Governor Gavin Newsom signed legislation creating the two-year reparations task force in 2020, making California the only state to move ahead with a study and plan with a mission to study the institution of slavery and its harms and to educate the public about its findings. Reparations at the federal level have not gone anywhere, but cities and universities are taking up the issue. The mayor of Providence, Rhode Island, announced a city commission in February while the city of Boston is considering a proposal to form its own reparations commission. The Chicago suburb of Evanston, Illinois, became the first United States city to make reparations available to black residents last year, although there are some who say the program has done nothing to right or wrong. California's task force members, nearly all of whom can trace their families back to enslaved ancestors in the U.S., were aware that their deliberations over a pivotal question will shape reparations discussions across the country. The members were appointed by the governor and the leaders of the two legislative chambers. Those favoring a lineage approach said that a compensation and restitution plan based on genealogy as opposed to race. Texas campaign scandal, theft, imposters, and alleged cover UPS. Frederick Frazier, a veteran Dallas police officer who landed Trump's endorsement in a tight primary race for a seat in the Texas State House, has been accused of impersonating a public official as part of a bizarre plot to sabotage the campaign of his opponent. On Tuesday, Rolling Stone confirmed through a response to a public records request that Frazier is under investigation for the alleged scheme, an investigation that his employer, the Dallas police, did not know about until contacted by Rolling Stone. At the request of the Collin County District Attorney's Office, the Texas Rangers Garland Office, was assigned an investigation for potential criminal violations by Texas State Representative District 61 candidate and former McKinney City Councilman, Frederick Frazier, the investigation synopsis provided by the Texas Rangers reads. The alleged criminal violations were of impersonating a public servant and potentially related theft. Frazier did not respond to a request for comment about the investigation, but his campaign manager, Craig Murphy, issued a statement on his behalf regarding the allegations referenced by the Texas Rangers. It is denied, Murphy said. Murphy went on to insist, as Frazier has in the past, that Frazier's opponent, Paul Chabot, has a history of manufacturing political controversies, and that his claims that Frazier has been passing himself off as a code inspector to con local businesses into removing Chabot's campaign signs, if not taking them down himself, is just another dirty trick. Chabot's campaign, and a bevy of circumstantial evidence that we now know has triggered an investigation into Frazier, suggest otherwise. The saga began, as it so often goes in American life, when someone wanted to speak to the manager. Late last fall, a man wearing a McKinney City shirt and driving a white pickup truck approached a local Walmart. Instability looms in Pakistan as Khan and Army clash. 
When Pakistan Prime Minister Imran Khan released a photo of a luncheon with Bill Gates last month, social media users noticed something odd, the round table had 13 seats, but only a dozen men. The vacant space contained a ghost-like figure who appeared to be conversing with others around him, raising questions about whether the image had been doctored. Shortly afterward, local news outlets reported that the country's new spy chief, Lt. Gen. Nadeem Anjum, had been erased out of the shot. The drama began four months earlier, when Army Chief Kamar Javed Bajwa appointed Anjum to lead the Inter-Services Intelligence, or ISI, which oversees Pakistan's internal security. Khan then delayed the appointment and publicly voiced support for General Fuiz Hamid, widely seen as his ally, to stay in the role. After a standoff lasting several weeks, the army chief got his way. Pakistan's civilian leaders have long clashed with the military, which has ruled the country for about half of its history. Yet if anything, Khan has been criticized for being too close to the army since he promised to oversee a new Pakistan writ of corruption and favoritism following his 2018 election win. His relationship with Hamid drew particular scrutiny. While the law says the premier appoints the ISI chief on the recommendation of the military, the opposition questioned Khan's motives. Nawaz Sharif, a three-time prime minister, accused Hamid of orchestrating his ouster on corruption charges in 2017 and swinging the election a year later. Khan's own actions didn't help. Besides seeking to keep Hamid at the ISI, the prime minister broke taboos by mentioning a private discussion with the army chief at a public rally, countering the military's own claims. Russia-Ukraine War, what we know on day 36 of the Russian invasion. The Russian Defense Ministry announced a local ceasefire on Thursday to allow civilians to be evacuated from Ukraine's besieged port city of Mariupol, according to agents France Presa. A humanitarian corridor from Mariupol to Zaporizhia, via the Russian-controlled port of Berdyansk, would be opened from 10 a.m., 7 a.m. Greenwich Mean Time, the ministry said on Wednesday. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky has warned that Russia is massing its forces for a big offensive in the eastern region of Donbass. He said Ukraine was prepared for it and added that any Russian withdrawal of troops from around Kiev had been forced by the fierce resistance of Ukrainian troops. Russia and Ukraine will resume online peace talks on Friday, April 1. A senior Ukraine official said leaders of the two countries, Vladimir Putin and Volodymyr Zelensky, could meet soon, but the Kremlin downplayed hopes of an early breakthrough. Ukraine's president said in a televised address to the nation on Wednesday that, for the moment there are just words, nothing concrete. Zelensky said he talked to Joe Biden for an hour on another very active diplomatic day, thanking the U.S. president for a new $1 billion humanitarian aid package and an additional $500 million in direct budget support. Zelensky said, the support of the United States is vital for us. And now it is especially important to lend a hand to Ukraine to show all the power of the democratic world. Russian shelling continued on Wednesday despite Moscow saying on Tuesday that it would scale back its attacks around Kiev and the northern city of Chernihiv. However, reports citing the Pentagon said that Russian forces were walking away from the Chernobyl nuclear plant. UK, US and EU officials say Putin has been misled over Russian military performance. Putin has received misinformation about how well Russia is doing and how much the sanctions have affected the country because some of those closest to him are afraid. For India, Russia's war on Ukraine could be a gift. When Russia launched its full-scale war on Ukraine, 
India first appeared stuck in an unenviable corner. Having edged closer to the West in recent years as an insurance policy against its main adversary, China, New Delhi might have been expected to align with Washington and its allies in the conflict. Yet India has been reluctant to condemn Russia, on which it remains utterly dependent for the vast majority of its military equipment. At the same time, there is a deep reservoir of goodwill in India for Russia as a partner since the 1950s, when Moscow backed New Delhi as Western powers aligned with Islamabad. While India's ties with the West grew rapidly in the last two decades, the empathy for Russia has endured. Little surprise, then, that India abstained on all the resolutions at the United Nations Security Council and General Assembly censuring the Russian invasion. That India found itself on the same side on this issue as China is a paradoxical effect of the war in Ukraine. Now, it appears that the war may actually be a gift for New Delhi. Washington has muted its criticism, it knows that New Delhi is needed as a partner against Beijing and understands that India's dependence on Russian military hardware requires it to play nice with Moscow. Just like China, resource-constrained India has also made good use of the crisis to snap up cheap Russian oil, which it is buying at a heavy discount to market prices as Western customers increasingly shun Russian deliveries. Meanwhile, China and Russia are seizing the opportunity offered by India's reluctance to join the West in condemning the Russian invasion in order to entice India into greater political cooperation. Last week, Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi arrived in New Delhi on an unannounced visit. This Thursday, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov is expected to arrive in India as well. While Beijing and Moscow might hope to lure New Delhi into a new, anti-Western Asian coalition. How Ukraine's Mikhailo Fedorov is fighting a digital war DJI has long attempted to keep an arm's length from geopolitics, especially as China maintains a pro-Kremlin lean during the war in Ukraine. But the company responded within hours, offering to attempt to block drone flights by installing a geofence throughout the country. With a single provocative tweet, Fedorov had notched another victory. Following these attacks, you would get a growing and a burning sense of injustice and a sense of just preservation of yourself, your nation and your freedom, he said through an interpreter during an exclusive Zoom interview with the Washington Post. This sense will be something that propels you to fight for your very existence as a nation. With such shrewd online maneuvers, the deputy prime minister has emerged as one of Ukraine's most visible leaders, a digital savant marshalling global tech companies and local resources in a conflict he has begun to call World Cyber War I. Thanks to his office, Ukraine boasts a formidable offensive online, even as its forces play defense on the ground. But while Fedorov gained fame using his Twitter as a cannon to pressure Apple, Facebook and other companies to build a digital blockade against Russia, his tactics now are evolving into a robust behind-the-scenes offensive as the war enters its second month. In recent weeks, his ministry has embarked on an extensive outreach campaign, sending more than 4,000 requests to companies, governments and other organizations, each one personally signed by Fedorov. His office is in touch with thousands of CEOs of smaller businesses, he said. And as American companies take steps to limit business in Russia amid public pressure and sanctions, Fedorov's team is focusing on an unlikely ally, large Chinese companies, like DJI and Alipay, Russia's best hope for blunting the impact of broad economic sanctions leveraged by the West. Ukraine war is an opportunity for Europe to reform itself. 
Protecting Ukraine's independence against the unprovoked aggression of Vladimir Putin's Russia is the common cause of Western democracies. For European countries, this effort consists chiefly of military support for Ukraine, assistance for refugees, sanctions against Moscow, and plans to reduce the EU's energy reliance on Russia. The Europeans have so far displayed admirable firmness and speed of decision-making, but there is one area, touching on sensitive matters closer to home, that needs attention. The war presents an opportunity for Europeans to turn over a new leaf by conducting a more vigorous campaign in their own countries against corruption and abuse of the rule of law. As much as any rearmament program, this would make Europe's democracies more resilient in what is shaping up as not just a war over Ukraine but a longer-term contest with an abrasive, anti-Western Russia. The heavy economic costs of this contest are already apparent. All the more important, then, are decisive steps to clean up public life, to illustrate with absolute clarity what distinguishes Europe's democratic values and systems of government from Putin's kleptocratic authoritarianism. In some countries, the authorities are grasping the nettle of alleged misconduct in high places. Public prosecutors in Prague intend to put on trial Andrei Babish, the former Czech prime minister, in a fraud case involving EU subsidies. In Bulgaria, former Premier Boyko Borisov spent almost a day in police custody as part of an investigation into suspected blackmail. Borisov was released without charges, and both he and Babish deny wrongdoing. Elsewhere, the machinery of EU justice is cranking up. Since it opened in June 2021, the European Public Prosecutor's Office has launched 576 investigations into economic and financial crime, mainly involving EU subsidies and cross-border VAT fraud. What will happen if Russia turns off taps to Germany? The German government has triggered the first stage of an emergency plan for natural gas supplies and urged consumers to save energy in the face of growing concerns that sanctions hit Russia could stop deliveries unless it is paid in rubles. Russian President Vladimir Putin announced last week his country would only accept payments in rubles for natural gas deliveries to unfriendly countries, those that have imposed sanctions over Russia's invasion of Ukraine, including all European Union members. The announcement was seen as an effort to shore up the ruble, which has collapsed against other currencies since Russia invaded Ukraine on February 24 and Western countries responded with debilitating sanctions against Moscow. Russia is the world's largest exporter of gas in terms of volume, accounting for nearly half of the EU's imports in 2021. For Germany, Europe's largest economy, that figure stood at 55% last year. And although Germany's gas imports from Russia dropped to 40% in the first quarter of 2022, Economy Minister Robert Habeck has said his country will not achieve full independence from Russian supplies before mid-2024. Here's what to know about Germany's decision to sound the first official alarm about gas supplies. What is the issue? Russia said last week it would draw up a mechanism by March 31 under which the unfriendly countries would pay for gas in rubles. Most now pay in euros or United States dollars. Moscow is expected to unveil new rules for gas payments on Thursday. Habeck has rejected Russia's gas for rubles demand, saying contracts would be honored under current terms. Payment in rubles is not acceptable and, we call on the companies concerned and not to comply with Putin's demand, he said on Monday. Russia's biggest German customers are Uniper, RWE and NBW's VNG, which all have long-term gas supply contracts. Zelensky addresses Australian Parliament 
Ukrainian military governors in the country's east reported heavy shelling Thursday amid an apparent shift by the Russian military to redirect military efforts to the Donbass region. We clearly feel that the transfer of military technology in our direction is beginning now, said Suri Haidai, head of Luhansk Region Military Administration, in televised remarks. And as the equipment and personnel are being turned over, our enemies are simply firing more densely, powerfully. Everything is already involved here, aircraft, artillery, heavy-caliber weapons, mortars, all settlements are being shelled, he said. Separately, Pavlo Kirilenko, head of Donetsk Region Military Administration, said on Telegram that Russian forces overnight continued shelling in the central part of the region. In Mariinka, Krasnoharivka and Novomykhailivka, the enemy again used white phosphorus shells, he said, referring to munitions that are either banned or circumscribed under international law in populated areas. Eleven wounded civilians from the Mariinka community, including four children, were taken to the Karakov City Hospital. Planned evacuation, Ukrainian and Russian officials announced a major evacuation was planned for Thursday from the besieged city of Mariupol, in Ukraine's southeast. Haidai, the Luhansk regional administrator, said efforts had also been underway to evacuate civilians from small towns in his region, even without such agreements with the Russian side. Our evacuation is going on every day without the so-called humanitarian corridors, he said. We don't trust the orcs, a derogatory Ukrainian term for Russian troops, very much, and secondly, they don't really agree with those corridors. It would be very important for us to evacuate people from Rubizn and Papasna, the settlements that are under maximum fire. Ukraine-Russia talks offer glimmer of hope in fifth week of war. Week 5 of Russia's war in Ukraine brought some Ukrainian successes around Kyiv and a Russian reorientation to focus on liberating the eastern Donbass region, suggesting Moscow is giving up on regime change and focusing on territorial gains with a view to a settlement. The week also offered a glimpse of what that settlement might look like. Ukraine put forward a detailed proposal of neutrality as negotiators met in Istanbul on March 29. It included pledges to not join military alliances or host foreign troops, and that it would remain a non-nuclear power. That would mean Ukraine would give up its aspirations to join NATO, as Russian President Vladimir Putin has demanded. Ukraine suggested guarantors will be permanent members of the UN Security Council, the United States, the United Kingdom, France, China and Russia, as well as Israel, Turkey, Germany, Canada and Poland. Some experts have said such a peace deal would weaken Ukrainian sovereignty and reward Russia. In terms of international legal norms, it is absolutely unacceptable that stronger powers violate international borders and dictate their terms to the weaker side, said Greek former Deputy Foreign Minister Yiannis Valinakis. However, wars usually end up creating new realities on the ground. Russia will insist on at least partial demilitarization of Ukraine, he told Al Jazeera. Valinakis believes security guarantees will be problematic for both sides. I cannot see Putin's interest in accepting the proposed guarantees. NATO itself will not encourage its members granting security guarantees to Kiev, in case of a Russian attack on a guarantor power, the alliance would risk activating Article 5, on collective defense, and thereby a catastrophic escalation to a Russian-NATO war. Ukrainian negotiator Oleksandr Chali highlighted the proposal's positives. Putin's advisers feeding him bad info about Ukraine war. A U.S. official told reporters Putin is being fed bad information about Russia's war with Ukraine.
Putin is being misinformed by his advisors about how badly the Russian military is performing. The official said the advisors are too afraid to tell him the truth about Russia's failures. U.S. intelligence officials have determined that Russian President Vladimir Putin is being misinformed by his advisors about his nation's forces' poor performance in Ukraine, according to a U.S. official. Meanwhile, President Joe Biden told Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky during a 55-minute call on Wednesday that an additional $500 million in direct aid for Ukraine was on its way. It's the latest burst in American assistance as the Russian invasion grinds on. A U.S. official, who spoke on the condition of anonymity to discuss recently declassified intelligence, said the intel finding indicates that Putin is aware of the situation on information coming to him and there is now persistent tension between him and senior Russian military officials. The Biden administration is hopeful that divulging the finding could help prod Putin to reconsider his options in Ukraine. The war has ground to a bloody stalemate in much of the country, with heavy casualties and Russian troop morale sinking as Ukrainian forces and volunteers put up an unexpectedly stout defense. But the publicity could also risk further isolating Putin, who U.S. officials have said seems at least in part driven by a desire to win back Russian prestige lost by the fall of the Soviet Union. Asked about the latest intelligence, Secretary of State Antony Blinken did not confirm the findings, but suggested that a dynamic within the Kremlin exists where advisors are unwilling to speak to Putin with candor. One of the Achilles' heels of autocracies is that you don't have people in those systems that speak truth to power or have the ability to speak truth. Russian President Vladimir Putin is likely being fed bad information by his top advisors about Russia's five-week invasion of Ukraine because they are too afraid to tell him the truth about Russian failures in the war, a U.S. official told reporters, including NBC News and CNN. We believe that Putin is being misinformed by his advisors about how badly the Russian military is performing and how the Russian economy is being crippled by sanctions because his senior advisors are too afraid to tell him the truth, the official said citing declassified intelligence. Putin didn't even know his military was using and losing conscripts in Ukraine, showing a clear breakdown in the flow of accurate information to the Russian president, the official added. The official also said the U.S. has information that Putin felt misled by the Russian military, CNN reported, describing persistent tension between Putin and the Ministry of Defense, stemming from Putin's mistrust in MOD leadership, the official added. Western officials told reporters on Tuesday that Russian elites will likely blame one another for Russia's disastrous progress in its war with Ukraine. Ukraine says Russia forcibly relocates thousands from Mariupol over the border. Most of the men were ordered to stay behind, including those with disabilities, she said. Only those few men who had to take care of big families with small children could leave. The soldiers moved a group of about 90 people to a local school which still had some of its walls intact, and the next morning put them all on buses bound for an unknown destination. The young woman and her family were among several thousand residents of Mariupol who Ukrainian officials estimate have been forcibly relocated to Russia through separatist-controlled republics in eastern Ukraine. She described being taken to what the Russian army called a, a filtration camp, a vast military tent with rows of men in uniforms calling up civilians one by one. Each temporarily displaced person, as the soldiers referred to them, was photographed from all sides and fingerprinted. Then the Ukrainians were told to turn over their phones and passwords to another officer, who entered their data into his computer, including their phone contacts. The next step was interrogation. 
Satellite images and videos verified by the Washington Post show that in recent weeks, Russian-backed forces have begun building a camp in Bezimen in separatist-controlled eastern Ukraine. At all stages of the journey, we were treated like captives or some criminals. I felt like a sack of potatoes tossed around, said the woman, who spoke on the condition of anonymity because of safety concerns about a relative in Russia. You have no will. How can you resist this? Even if you have a chance to escape, everything around is destroyed, and there is nowhere to hide. After the Russians started shelling her Mariupol suburb in the early days of the invasion, the young woman and her family took shelter in an underground bunker. When she emerged into the light for the first time after two weeks, she said, she could barely recognize the landscape of her town. Ferocious fighting for Izium, the city that's like hell for Russian soldiers. On one of several roads that lead to a place called Izium, there is a sign with a spray-painted edition reading, Russian soldier, you've been sent to hell. It is a warning, and a threat, issued by Ukrainian troops after three weeks of ferocious fighting for this city of 50,000. It also serves as a reminder, amid the diplomatic chatter emanating from Istanbul, that the Ukrainian military remains steadfast and realistic after a number of positive-sounding pronouncements from the Kremlin's lead negotiator, Vladimir Medinsky. Ukraine Live News Russia flies nuclear-armed planes into Swedish airspace. We saw Ukrainian troops fortifying the local road system, building barricades with concrete and blocks of granite. There were trucks loaded up with ammunition and anti-aircraft guns, driven in the direction of the front. We also passed hundreds of troops, perched on the top of armored vehicles, being transported in the same direction. Izium itself is now unreachable, and the villages that surround it have been flattened by Russian artillery and planes. We saw bomb craters that were as big as a house in a village called Oskol. We stopped to talk to a small group of Ukrainian soldiers several kilometers from the front. They told us we would need nine lives to make it to the city. It is impossible to get there. If you are talking about our last position, on the road to Izium, everything that goes there explodes. Ukraine braces for fresh wave of attacks in east as Russia builds forces in Donbass. Russia is building up its forces in eastern Ukraine in readiness for a new wave of attacks in the breakaway Donbass region, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has said, as another attempt was being made to rescue trapped civilians and deliver aid to besieged Mariupol. In an early morning video address, the Ukrainian president said Russia's drawdown announcement had been forced upon the Kremlin by the fierce resistance of Ukraine's armed forces. He added that his government was instead seeing a buildup of Russian forces for new strikes on the Donbass and preparing for that. The region encompasses two self-proclaimed people's republics that Russia says it is helping to free from Ukrainian control. The leader of the self-proclaimed Donetsk People's Republic, Denis Pushilin, said on Wednesday that offensive operations were intensifying. Donetsk includes the besieged port city of Mariupol, which has seen some of the war's heaviest fighting and bombardment and where about 170,000 people are trapped with scarce food and water. Ukraine's Deputy Prime Minister Irina Verishchuk said on Thursday morning that a convoy of 45 buses were on their way to the city after the International Committee of the Red Cross confirmed Moscow had agreed to open a corridor from 10 a.m. local time, 7 a.m. Greenwich Mean Time, for three hours. Previous attempts to organize safe passage have failed. Moscow denies targeting Ukrainian civilians in its five-week bombardment of the city. 
A successful evacuation would build on Russian promises to draw down its forces in some areas before the planned resumption of peace talks on Friday. Ukraine's government and its Western allies, however, remain wary that Russia is building up its forces in eastern Ukraine in readiness for a new wave of attacks in the breakaway Donbass region, which includes Mariupol. Despite the withdrawal claims, Russian forces have continued to bombard the northern city of Chernihiv and parts of the capital Kiev. Why Russia's military is bogged down by logistics in Ukraine After weeks of little success except in southeastern Ukraine, despite relentless shelling and thousands of military and civilian casualties, Moscow said during peace negotiations on Tuesday that it would drastically reduce military activity in the northern part of the country, near Kiev and Chernihiv. After a surprisingly fierce Ukrainian resistance, we can suspect that, Russians, did not properly organize the logistics necessary for an effective Plan B, which was to have an actual, serious fight in what is the largest country in Europe outside of Russia, said Michael Kaufman, director of Russia Studies at CNA, a Virginia-based think tank. Russia prefers to move troops and supplies on railroads, and it is doing that now in the southeast after seizing Kherson and Melitopol and securing a crossing over the Dnieper River. But it doesn't control rail hubs such as Chernihiv in the north, and because the ground has been wet and muddy, Russian vehicles have to stick to roads. Trucking takes a lot of time, said Kaufman, and the tyranny of distance becomes really, really challenging because they're trying to push a large force down some fairly narrow roads. And it's not just one trip. Supply trucks and other support vehicles have to constantly shuttle back and forth. What one Russian formation may look like. Weapons and fighters in any ground invasion would not last long without the support of mechanics, medics, engineers, truck drivers. Ukraine expects Russian assault in east after invaders pushed back near Kiev. Ukraine prepares for fresh Russian attacks, Russian troops pull back from capital Kiev, economic impact of war felt, gas supplies in focus. Lviv, March 31, Ukrainian forces are preparing for new Russian attacks in the southeast region where Moscow's guns are now trained after its assault on the capital Kiev was repelled, President Volodymyr Zelensky said on Thursday. Five weeks into an invasion that has blasted cities into wastelands and created more than 4 million refugees, U.S. and European officials said Russian President Vladimir Putin was misled by his generals about the dire performance of Russia's military. Tough resistance by Ukrainian forces has prevented Russia from capturing any major city, including the capital Kiev, which it assaulted with armored columns from the northwest and east. Moscow says it is now focusing on liberating the Donbass region, two southeastern provinces partly controlled by separatists Russia has backed since 2014. In an early morning video address, Zelensky said Russian troop movements away from Kiev and the northern city of Chernihiv were not a withdrawal, but rather, the consequence of our defenders' work. Ukraine was seeing a buildup of Russian forces for new strikes on the Donbass, and we are preparing for that, he said. That includes Mariupol, once a city of 400,000 people, where most buildings have been damaged or destroyed in four weeks of constant Russian bombardment and siege. A convoy of Ukrainian buses set out for the port city on Thursday to try to reach trapped civilians, Deputy Prime Minister Irina Verishchuk said. The United Nations believes thousands of people have died there, many buried in unmarked graves. The past week has seen a Ukrainian counteroffensive, recapturing destroyed suburbs of Kiev and strategic towns and villages in the northeast and southwest. Turkey leads pack of countries vying to mediate between Ukraine and Russia.
Among the pack of countries vying to act as mediators in the Russia-Ukraine war, Turkey has emerged as the winner, increasing the stature of Turkish diplomacy, even if at this stage the theatrics may be well ahead of any solid outcome. Emmanuel Macron continues his dogged round of phone calls with Vladimir Putin, but it is the Turkish foreign ministry that seems able to bring the Ukrainians and Russians together. It is a curious position. Turkey, a NATO member, continues to supply weapons to Ukraine, while refusing to impose sanctions on Russia, and yet is apparently respected enough by both sides to host Tuesday's talks. The Turks also have a profound sense of what may be at stake. Speaking at the weekend in Doha, Ibrahim Kalin, the advisor and spokesperson to the Turkish president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, spelled it out, once this is all over, there will have to be a new security architecture to emerge globally. How that global security architecture will be structured will shape the course of events for decades to come. Every step we take, every move we make to bring an end to this war will have an impact on that new security architecture. In short, this is a set of peace talks that could have reverberations not just for the combatants, but the world. It would also be wrong to think Turkey does not have its own point of view. Kalin says, what led to this war needs to be studied carefully. The power disequilibrium that has shaped the international order ever since the end of the Cold War over the last three decades has everything to do with the rise of this crisis and eventually the war we are trying to stop now. Although he said the war was unjustified and unprovoked, he added, whatever causes and grievances or security concerns Russia had going to this war have to be heard, not justified. We need to talk to Russia. If everybody burns bridges with Russia, who is going to talk to them at the end of the day? What it will take for Ukraine to win the war. While Russian forces have faced stiff resistance in Ukraine, President Vladimir Putin is attempting to turn the tide of the war through a long and brutal military campaign. But if the United States and its Western partners can ramp up and sustain military assistance to Ukraine for the long term, Moscow may eventually lose the war, a virtually unthinkable outcome several weeks ago. Economic and diplomatic steps are important, but military aid is the linchpin. The Russian military is facing what Chinese revolutionary leader Mao Zedong called a people's war. As Mao wrote in his book on protracted war, the richest source of power to wage war lies in the masses of the people. Mao argued that in a well-organized resistance effort, the invading force will be surrounded by hundreds of millions of our people standing upright, and he will be burned to death. While Mao was referring to China's war against invading Japanese forces in the 1930s, he could easily have been describing Ukraine. Russian forces have faced stiff resistance from conventional Ukrainian forces and a population that has mobilized against an occupying army. According to US and NATO estimates, the Russian military has suffered between 10,000 and 15,000 fatalities and between 30,000 and 40,000 total casualties, which include wounded, captured, killed, and missing soldiers, from Ukrainian forces equipped with Stinger anti-aircraft systems, Javelin anti-tank systems, Bayraktar TB2 drones, and other lethal weapons and systems, many of them sent by the West. Yet Putin remains committed to waging a scorched-earth campaign in Ukraine. The Russian military has devastated several Ukrainian cities with artillery barges, guided and unguided missiles launched from aircraft, long-range cruise missiles from naval vessels, and hypersonic. A Russian businessman says sanctioning oligarchs won't work. Yevgeny Chichvarkin is looking agitated. 
He's just heard a whisper about some potential stock going cheap and so politely declines my suggestion we leave his bustling wine shop in London's Tony Mayfair district in search of somewhere quieter to chat. But Chichvarkin isn't dashing off in pursuit of another 1774 Jura Vin John, which sells for a precise £72,553.80, 95308 dollars at Hedonism Wines, the store he set up in 2012 to be the world's best wine shop. Instead, he is preparing to inspect a consignment of military fatigues and battleware at a warehouse in the nearby town of Slough, worth some $650,000, he tells me conspiratorially. It belongs to a rich Russian who had his assets frozen and needs to sell. If it works out, I'll send it straight to the Ukrainian army. Chichvarkin isn't your typical wine merchant. In fact, with his Salvador Dali mustache, billowing pantaloons, gold tooth earring, and pink leather winkle pickers, the very idea of typical seems anathema to the 47-year-old entrepreneur, who has lived in London since fleeing his native Russia face down in the back of a car in 2008. Chichvarkin was born in St. Petersburg, back when it was still Leningrad. He rose to become one of his nation's youngest billionaires, by founding cell phone retailer Everset in 1997, which swelled to 5,000 stores by 2007. But he fell afoul of local officials who accused Chichvarkin of kidnapping and extortion, charges he has always called bogus. Chichvarkin and his business partner sold Everset for a reported cut price $400 million, and after successfully fighting extradition proceedings, he now lives in exile. In London, he has enjoyed a coda as businessman, restaurateur, and thorn in the side of Russian President Vladimir Putin, supporting democratic causes in Russia. Europe is facing supply disruptions as Russia's gas for rubles deadline looms. Russia's insistence that its unfriendly nations pay in rubles for Russian natural gas risks disrupting European supplies as soon as this week as the deadline set by Putin for moving to ruble payments is drawing closer. Europe, which depends on Russian natural gas for more than one-third of its demand, with some countries, including the biggest economy Germany, depending on Russia for half of its consumption, has rejected the gas for rubles idea, saying it would be a breach of contracts to switch the currency in payments. Russia, for its part, says it demands only rubles for its gas and will not ship gas for free. Europe's gas prices continued rising on Tuesday, two days ahead of the March 31 deadline Vladimir Putin has set for the government, Gazprom, and the Central Bank of Russia to make the arrangements for payments in rubles from the so-called hostile countries. The Russian president, whose list of hostile states includes the United States, all EU member states, Switzerland, Canada, Norway, South Korea, Japan, and many others, ordered last week the central bank to develop a system for payments in rubles within a week. The Russian government together with the Bank of Russia and Gazprom PJSC should implement a set of measures on changing the currency of payment for natural gas supplies to the countries of the European Union and other states that imposed restrictive measures against the citizens of the Russian Federation and Russian legal entities, to the Russian ruble, Putin said this week per a Kremlin document cited by Russian news agency TASS. Putin has also ordered the Russian government to approve a move on changing Gazprom's current contracts to reflect the change in the currency to the Russian ruble. This should be done with supply volumes, prices, and price formation principles stipulated by contracts maintained by March 31. Russia's war against Ukraine has accelerated the doomsday clock. Since the start of the war in Ukraine, 
There has been a lot of speculation about Russia's military strategy and President Vladimir Putin's geostrategic aims. Indeed, it is still unclear what Putin wants, and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's repeated offers of a face-to-face -face meeting have been rejected by Moscow, although that could soon change. In the meantime, the destruction of Ukraine continues unabated, while European countries and the United States ramp up military spending in what is perhaps the clearest indication yet that a new Cold War may be underway. The North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO, is reinforcing its Eastern Front and there are no signs from Washington that the Biden administration is interested in engaging in constructive diplomacy to end the war in Ukraine. In fact, President Joe Biden is adding fuel to the fire by using highly inflammatory language against the Russian president. In the interview that follows, world-renowned scholar and leading dissident Noam Chomsky delves into the latest developments concerning the war in Ukraine, but also takes us into a tour de force expose of extreme selectivity in moral outrage on the part of the US and, additionally, shares some of his insights into the contemporary political culture in the US, which includes the reshaping of the ideological universe of the Republican Party, political fervor and book banning. CJ Polychronia, Noam, the latest reports about the war in Ukraine indicate that Russia seems to be shifting its strategy, with an intent of partitioning the country like North and South Korea, according to some Ukrainian officials. In the meantime, NATO decided to reinforce its Eastern Front, as if Russia has plans to invade Bulgaria, Romania and Slovenia, while Washington not only continues to be mum about peace in Ukraine, but we heard Biden engage in some toxic masculinity talk against Putin in his recent visit to Poland. Russia has effectively admitted defeat in Ukraine. On March 25, the Russian Ministry of Defense announced that the first phase of the invasion of Ukraine was over. A mere month earlier, President Vladimir Putin had vowed to completely destroy Ukraine's military capabilities and to replace the Ukrainian government, which he claimed without any evidence was a neo-Nazi junta planning to commit genocide in Donbass. To that end, on February 24 the Russian army and airborne forces attempted a lightning assault on Kiev and simultaneously launched offensives against Kharkiv, Sumy, Chernihiv, Kherson, Melitopol, Mariupol and on the line of contact in the Donbass region. The subsequent month of unexpectedly vicious high-intensity combat has seen Russian forces fail to take all the cities, with the exception of the smaller southern cities of Kherson and Melitopol, which fell in the first days. In return, the Russian army has taken extremely heavy losses, between 7,000 and 15,000 personnel killed and more than 2,000 vehicles visually confirmed as destroyed or captured. The new announcement by the Russian government is a direct response to these failures. It is an admission that, at least for now, Russia cannot return Ukraine to its control by force. Instead of regime change, denazification, according to Russia, the new claim is that Russia's goal is a more limited focus on taking territory and destroying Ukrainian forces in the Donbass. This is a serious crisis for President Putin's regime. To justify that special military operation against Ukraine, he has used extreme rhetoric and baseless claims of neo-Nazism and genocide in Ukraine for months. Since the invasion began, ordinary Russians have been presented with a barrage of Z-themed pro-war propaganda patriotic speeches and rallies designed to stir patriotic fervor. Putin gambled on Russian support for war in Ukraine. Now, he faces a new front at home. 
Of the factors that contributed to Russian President Vladimir Putin's decision to invade Ukraine in late February, none was more prominent than the support he felt from his citizens, the top U.S. officer for operations in Europe told Congress on Wednesday. He was attempting to take advantage of fissures that could have appeared in NATO as a result of the post-Afghanistan environment, Air Force General Todd Wolters, commander of U.S. European Command, told the House Armed Services Committee Wednesday morning when asked about Putin's decision-making. I also think it has to do with his age and his efficacy. And all those combined together put him into a position where he elected to go at this time. But the overriding variable, in my view, Wolters added, is the fact he believes that he has popular support of his citizens. And, like the capability of the Russian military and the determined resistance of Ukrainian forces, it may be a factor he misread. The question of Putin's support at home has emerged as perhaps the most pressing variable facing Western officials as they decide how to proceed in Ukraine and effectively pressure on the aging autocrat. For them, a focus on ending the conflict in the former Soviet state has become as important as ensuring it doesn't spill over into a larger war, perhaps even with NATO as a whole. Putin has long enjoyed high approval ratings at home in part, Western analysts say, due to a murderous persecution of his political adversaries, tight controls on information available to the average citizen there and a staunch crackdown on displays of public dissent. Faced with the conundrum of successfully pressuring Putin, President Joe Biden and other leaders in Europe have directed particular attention on the unity of NATO countries. Russia bombards areas where it pledged to scale back. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said he stressed to President Joe Biden that the war is at a turning point. He thanked the U.S. for an additional $500 million in aid announced Wednesday, but also said Ukraine needs more help to resist the Russian invasion. If we really are fighting for freedom and in defense of democracy together, then we have a right to demand help in this difficult turning point. Tanks, aircraft, artillery systems. Freedom should be armed no worse than tyranny, Zelensky said in his nightly video address to the nation, which he delivered standing in the dark outside the dimly lit presidential offices in Kiev. The Russian military announced Tuesday that it would de-escalate near the capital and the northern city of Chernihiv in order to increase mutual trust and create conditions for further negotiations. But the announcement was met with deep suspicion from Zelensky and the West. Soon after, Ukrainian officials reported that Russian shelling hit homes, stores, libraries and other civilian sites in and around Chernihiv and on the outskirts of Kiev. Russian troops also stepped up their attacks on the Donbass region in the east and around the city of Izium, which lies on a key route to the Donbass, after redeploying units from other areas, the Ukrainian side said. Oleksandr Lomeko, secretary of the Chernihiv City Council, said the Russian announcement turned out to be a complete lie. At night they didn't decrease, but vice versa increased the intensity of military action, Lomeko said. Five weeks into the invasion that has left thousands dead on both sides, the number of Ukrainians fleeing the country topped a staggering four million, half of them children, according to the United Nations. I do not know if we can still believe the Russians, Nikolai Nazarov, a refugee from Ukraine, said as he pushed his father's wheelchair at a border crossing into Poland.